Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Pastor Rick Carr, inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. What a week. What a month. The World Cup, with all of the controversies surrounding Qatar, after being there for a week, I can't place a value judgment on those controversies. I'm not that smart. But I will tell you that the city and the country was electric. Soccer is electric. Look at Saudi Arabia. Look at Japan early. Look at some of the other upsets. And we're not even through the group stage more to come. Clearly, we'll have other issues, but you can't avoid deal-making issues three, two, one to be focused on the World Cup. So let's get started. Three. Deal-making issue number three focuses on the World Cup economics and how they're impacting the economy, startups, and other deals in Qatar. Countries estimated to have a staggering $220 billion spent since 2010. Get that number. $220 billion. 15 times what Russia spent for 18. And not just that. State has spent over $300 billion to upgrade the infrastructure. The Doha Metro, 1,000 kilometers of roads and highways, new airport, new city, new port. Not to mention gas and oil facilities. Several reports say financial analysts estimate Qatar's GDP to rise about 4.1% by the end of the year thanks to the World Cup. And between 2022 and 2030, GDP of the region will be at an average of 3.2%. Reports point out that the 2022 FIFA World Cup contributes over $20 billion to Qatar's economy. The data released in a new survey, more than half respondents, 54%, Qatar, 45% in Saudi Arabia, 42% in the UAE, will generate significant money and spending more money than they did during the previous World Cup tournaments. World Cup expected to witness a surge in the amount of food ordered. Levels of ordering 80% normal at peak times on match days compared to normal days, 80% above. Al Jazeera says in the first 10 months of the year, country reportedly seen inflows of more than $4 billion. The QSE, the stock market, outperformed peers in the run-up to the mega sporting event, expected to continue even a year after the tournament, the QSA index, measuring the most 20 liquid and largest stocks on the exchange, grew as much as 25% beginning of the year until April 22. It declined and flattened for a while, even though it was up 12%, while everybody else declined even more. And apart from the economic impact and the growth of larger companies, the sector in the region sees a significant growth, the economic one. One of the largest economic drivers in Qatar for the last 10 years, And we can't overestimate that no matter what other issues are on the table. Talk about tourism, a strong point to attract foreign investment and promotion for for Qatar, positively reflecting on the country's future as a tourism destination. Now, the entrepreneur and philanthropist said in the peninsula, Farm al-Sheikh al-Sayed, the GGC tourism grows tenfold company create a major impact on all the other countries, which didn't make it for the event as time goes by. 
Even the UAE and Saudi Arabia and other neighboring countries are benefiting from Qatar hosting the tournament and the growth. He noted that sports will grow in the country as the Asia Cup 2023 held in Qatar, Judo Championship, Horticultural Doha Expo 2023, etc. The events in Qatar are always preparing for the coming years and will keep it going. And the legacy of the World Cup, Qatar Airways plays a big role right after the World Cup to grow the network, which is currently around 150 destinations to perhaps 200. And with the state-of-the-art Hamad Port and five-star airlines they have, no stopping the regional growth. And in fact, Qatar stadiums, very close proximity to each other, and flights obviously are not to go to stadiums and stadiums, just to get to the country and spend money. One Deal-making issue number one talks about women focusing on soccer and sports. Athletic committing to double women's sports coverage. They plan the commercial professional women's sports multi-year partnership with Google. And the chief technical officers say, we want to expand the coverage of women's soccer, WNBA, and a whole host of other events, including the newsroom debuting an eight-month project following soccer stars ahead of the 2023 Women's World Cup. WNBA coverage includes games, also dive into the business side of basketball, including player endorsements, TV deals, other moments, such as like how the detainment of Brittany Griner has impacted the game in general. In addition to written articles, Google will deal and provide support in a lot of other contexts, events as well. Most of the paid promotion occurs on the Athletic and the New York Times sites, but some may occur off-platform. Company also eyeing expansion into other women's sports verticals like golf, tennis, and hockey. That's deal-making issue number one. What a great segue to our guest, keyed not only to Women World Cup celebrations as Qatar gives way to the Women's World Cup in two years, but also the growth of soccer generally. Uh, Marla Messing, Latham and Watkins' partner, Alan Rothenberg's partner, Uh, For a 30-year relationship, we had Alan on two weeks ago, and it makes sense to talk to Marla today, 1999 Women's World Cup CEO, the highest average attendance for women's uh, only sporting event in history, 90,000-seat Rose Bowl. We can all remember the U.S. and China, 1.2 million tickets across the platform of the World Cup, and a $350 million budget. She was not only the EVP of the 1994 Men's World Cup, SVP of the MLS as it formed, but the VP of the LA Olympic Bid Committee, the Paralympic Bid Committee, USTA head in Southern California, uh, in addition to her key role of running the 1999 Women's World Cup, the NWSL interim CEO early. Listen, she has an incredible credential set for anybody in soccer. Important to hear her anytime, especially now. Here's Marla Messer. Michigan undergrad, Chicago Law School. When did you decide that you would be involved in this yet evolving field of sports law? So, you know, it's actually really interesting because my great uncle was Paul Ziffrin, who was the chairman of the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee. Um, but I, I grew up in Chicago, not in Los Angeles, and I didn't really think about having a career in sports 
Um, but when I moved out to practice law at Latham and Watkins, I ended up sitting a couple doors down from Alan Rothenberg, who was already a very prominent uh, lawyer involved in sports and the sports business and teams and leagues. And, uh, and I got to know him, and after a couple of years, I found myself working at the 1994 FIFA World Cup. Found yourself working. That, that's not the way I had heard it. I had heard that you were the go-getter and Alan Rothenberg who we're also interviewing for this series, has said that it took, in his words, five minutes to decide that you would be basically running the event. Yeah. So obviously some diversity as well. Uh, did you realize, and we'll get into kind of the traits of all of this, that you needed business background, legal background, marketing background, psychology background, or a whole host of it? What, what, was, what was the most important uh, academic background to, to uh, uh, prepare you for all this? Well, when I got to the Men's World Cup, the only real background I had was a college degree and a legal background. Right. Um, but I really wasn't hired by Alan to be part of the legal department there. So, um, you know, I think in my many years now in sports, I always fall back on what I learned in law school and what I learned practicing law. But there's, you know, so many more aspects to it and, and certainly uh, an instinct for marketing, uh, good instincts around business, um, understanding, you know, deployment of capital, all those things are important. But I, I wasn't trained in those areas, and I think I, I was just blessed with some, you know, good, good intuition. Everybody understands the deployment of capital piece because that's what makes this world sing. You're in 94 and the FIFA World Cup, you had a $404 million surplus off a $30 million budget. That's a pretty significant number, there was a lot of, skepticism is the wrong word, but a lot of uncertainty as to how it be pulled off. But then you sell over a million tickets, you have 90,000 people at the Rose Bowl, and on and on and on. I could ask how you did it, but what was the mindset getting into it? What did you realize you had to do first to make it a success? So this is the Women's World Cup, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the Women's World Cup um, was in some ways an enormous risk. Um, and, and as the story goes, I went to the 96 Olympics yeah. and I watched uh, the U.S. women's national team play in the semifinals and the finals um, and saw, you know, this huge crowd at Sanford Stadium. Um, and, you know, we, we were trying to decide, was this just the, the Olympic aura or was there a genuine, you know, crowd for women's soccer, a genuine fan base for women's soccer? And, you know, just seeing the, the young girls in their Mia Hamm jerseys and Christine Lilly jerseys, you know, we decided that there seemed to be a real audience. It wasn't just an Olympic audience. So we do Olympics. We are significant in the bid to bring the Olympics to L.A. What motivated you to do that day job for a while? So, I mean, this, this is kind of a unique story. So after the Women's World Cup and after a short stint in a dot-com you know, dot company that blew up, I actually took 16 years off of work. I, uh, I mean, initially I thought I was going to take a couple years off, but I had had three children. I got very involved in, in raising them and in their school and this and that. And so... It wasn't until my children started to go off to college that I decided I wanted to work again. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to get a position at um, the LA Olympic and Paralympic yeah. bid committee. 
Um, but again, this was many, many years later. Uh, I spent a couple years there working on the bid, and then, um, and then you know, they got 28 instead of 24. Um, and so from there, I, I went to the USTA, spent a couple years there, and, and, and now with the NWSL. But, but there was a, a very large gap of time between the Women's World Cup and the Olympics. Large gap, gap of time, but, but it's an entire, entirely different organization and entirely different process as well. We'll get to tennis and soccer again in a minute. But uh, look, I could ask you whether you're excited about 28 in L.A. We all know you are. Uh, is the... Is the timing of this going to work out better in L.A. now that you have a versus 24? You've got a Super Bowl, you've got SoFi, you've got uh, college championships, you've got more time to deal with infrastructure. Looking back, right decision? I mean, I think it was a great decision. You know, kudos to Casey Wasserman yeah. for, um, for, for bringing that option to the IOC. Um, and I think it's worked out great. And as you said, uh, Los Angeles is blessed with a number of very significant events all the way through 28, including, you know, hopefully the, the Men's World Cup, the U.S. Open uh, golf tournament, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, all sorts of events. So it's going to be an incredible decade of sports in Southern California. All right, let's talk tennis. Okay. So, you, you know, you didn't have enough of, uh, of, of something that you weren't uh, – uh, absolutely familiar with. So the U.S. Tennis Association, Southern California, you needed to be cleaned up and approved. So here you are. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little more, more about it. So, um, well, first of all, I'm a big tennis fan. I love that. And, you know, Southern California has an incredible history yeah. with the sport of tennis. I mean, some of the most iconic figures in American tennis, you know, are from here. Right. You have, you know, Billie Jean King, Arthur Ashe went to UCLA. You have the Williams sisters. Lindsay Davenport. You have Lindsay Davenport. You have Tracy Austin. Yeah. You have Pete Sampras. I mean, there is an endless, you know, group of legends of the sport coming out of uh, Southern California. So it, it's a, a particularly interesting and fun place to uh, to be working in tennis. And, and also, you know, I'd spent so many years um, connected to U.S. soccer, which is yeah. the national governing body for soccer, even though I was never an employee of the governing body. So when the USTA came around, you know, I, I felt very familiar in the world of a governing body. And uh, so took that position and had a great time for a couple of years. So Marla Messing develops a brand of quintessential entrepreneurial lawyer, brighter than anybody else, but Miss Cleanup. And so as Miss Cleanup, we talk about the NWSL. You've used the word on and off camera, challenging. There are some very difficult issues facing the NWSL. Why do you decide to take it and what's next for you with them? So, um, you know, because of my work on the 1999 FIFA Women's World Cup, I, I always have a place in my heart for the sport of women's soccer. I think uh, the potential for the sport is, you know, unlimited. And so when the NWSL fell on very hard yeah. times uh, last year in 2021, um, you know, they reached out to me. Actually, Cindy Cohn of mm -hmm. U.S. Soccer reached out to me to see if I would come in and help and try to clean it up. Um, and I did. Um, and, you know, it was something, it was almost a labor of love. It's important to me that the sport and that the league um, get back on track and are successful and provide a place for 
women's soccer players to make a living doing what they love. So, um, so as I said, it's, it's a labor of love, but, um, you know, there are a lot of challenges, and, and, but we're getting there. We're making, we're making some progress. And only you could expedite this progress the way it's happening. However, it's a turbulent time. It's a time of Me Too. It's a lot of allegation times. He said, she said, a lot of litigation. You're a lawyer, so you can handle all that. That said, uh, this is an extraordinarily difficult and maybe pivotal time, not only for this league, but also uh, the future of the business of sports broadly defined. Do, do, do you see it that way? I do. I mean, I think that there have been cultural issues in sports, not just soccer, not just women's soccer, youth sports, you know, certainly yeah. uh, many of the Olympic sports, the um, sort of disempowerment of athletes yeah. uh, over the years has, has been too great. And, um, and I think this is a reckoning. Um, and, you know, the, the NWSL is part of a larger reckoning of uh, athletes being given, um, you know, much greater um, power and authority um, and, and an ability to, to make sure that they are treated, you know, treated properly. A couple more, uh, but broadly defined, since you've, there is not one sport you don't know or, 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 or been involved in. Uh, gaming, the broad definition, fantasy, esports, uh, stuff that was c met with considerable disdain years ago. Now it has to be embraced by everybody or they left it off the table. What's your impression generally where we are now and where it's going from your perspective? I mean, from my perspective, it's, you know, it's the next frontier or it's maybe not even the next frontier, it's here, right? Esports is massive um, and probably only getting bigger. Gaming, um, you know, it has been part of sports for a long time. It's now getting embraced and um, becoming more formalized uh, with the leagues. You know, quite frankly, I'd like to see it more on the women's side of the game. We haven't seen it as much as you do in, you know, the yeah. NFL and the NBA because um, if it can be managed, these things present tremendous commercial opportunities, um, and women's sports, you know, needs those commercial opportunities. So I hope that there's a, a, a sweet spot for those things in the women's game. And again, but it, it does have to be managed well. We have a large audience today, and there are some people in the audience who might have some influence over that, by the way, over some time. <laughs> you know, and the interesting thing about it, too, is that WNBA just finished a $70 million fundraise. Yep. And I'm sure when you look at the numbers of that, part of that is for the aspiration of gaming long term, too. So this is not an unrealistic goal. What about the obvious question, the role uh, influence you've had on young women in business? And we'll talk about young women in sports generally, but what's your advice for a young uh, a female who wants to get involved in the business? I mean, I think my advice is probably the same as for a young male. You know, yeah. you've got to do your homework. You got to it's, it's hard work. I mean, people, I think people look at jobs in sports and they think, oh, that would be a lot of fun. And, you know, you get to go to games and this and that. But uh, it's like any other business. It's a lot of hard work. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of preparation. It's a lot of learning and understanding, you know, how all the different dynamics fit together and, you know, how you can make an impact. So I think my advice is always get you know, the best education you can um, and be ready to work really hard. 
back in the leather helmet days, you know, Rick, speak for yourself. But we're old enough where, you know, when I was met with I want to do something in sports law, it was there's no such thing. Now it's a lot more competitive and a lot bigger. Predict kind of the future of the sports business and sports law is part of that too. Well, I think the sports business is just going to continue to grow. Um, I mean, you know, notwithstanding changes in the media marketplace and, you know, shifting sort of the shifting ground of of business in general and becoming more tech oriented and all those things, the sports business, you know, just continues to grow and thrive um, and, you know, will always be there. And, and, um, you know, the practice of law is always going to be a part of it because what are we talking about? We're talking about IP, right? Uh-huh. We're talking about player contracts. We're talking about you know sponsorship agreements and broadcast agreements. So you know it's still based in in the practice of law, um, and uh, and it's getting more interesting every day. Well, Marla Messing has some incredible perspectives as we continue and finish the World Cup. Well, let's do our tech minute on what happens after, because there are a lot of issues regarding soccer and otherwise that will take advantage of the sunshine of the World Cup. MLS Club, LAFC, becomes the first professional sports team to partner with genetics testing company three times for genetics, hormones, cognition, GenFit's ability to integrate genetics will become very important. And the bottom line is this club is the first one of many taking advantage of the World Cup sunshine, let's call it. The gaming minute. How about Georgia? The Georgia Lottery uh, uh, Corp reported its most profitable first quarter since its start in 1993, but the analysis found that Georgia, one of 15 states without legalized sports betting, could generate $600 million of revenue annually. This Peach State's population rivals Ohio, and officials in Georgia have shown some recent interest in legalization. The group looked at all 50 states to evaluate consumer-friendly sports betting markets. Georgia ranked last in that group, but they haven't promoted it either. And people say that they're maybe one of the last to get it. But let's remember, infrastructure needs generate revenue desires, and revenue desires as long as it's the right idea, do you hear that, California and Florida, also, usually, within a year or two, generate legalized gambling. Finally, Good Sports 5, Real Madrid Graduate School, Universidad Europea, signs an agreement to collaborate with Arizona State University. The Global Education Director of ASU says this becomes a significant collaboration across the board, and it signals other schools to do the same. Cristiano Ronaldo gets a mammoth $225 million offer from Saudi Arabia club Al Nasser after his Man U exit. And we'll have to see how that all works philanthropically as well. Indiana coach Terry Maron slams conditions of Vegas women's basketball tournament a major miss. They've got a lot to do to turn the conditions around to have more women's events in the future. Tom Brady sees the overtime loss to the Browns so snapped of uh, having a lead of a touchdown or more heading into the final two minutes. He had been 100%. Well, we focus on Tom Brady's failures, not his accomplishments. Maybe that's not the right answer. And people in Northeast Portland Sports Bar stopped an armed robbery 
early in the morning. They were uh, looking at the attempt of trying to take the, the store by force, but people overcame it. Sports is the beneficiary. Why? Because there are a lot of other people who are saying the World Cup has gotten people closer and they may not have done that before. That's a stretch, but people are at least talking about it in the conversation. Well, we'd like to thank Marla Messing for her perspective, especially at the, at the, uh, at the World Cup. I'd like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping us with the show and all those who put the podcast together at a timely if, a moment in our history. We'd like to thank all of you that have jumped on the $1.3 trillion business of sports to listen today and tomorrow and beyond. We'll talk to you next week with more information from this rapidly growing sports world, especially the World Cup. I'm the sports professor, Rick Haro. Speak with you soon.